Ladies and gents, welcome back to the Pop Culture Podcast. Tyson Popplestone here. Today on the show, we're joined by Australian comedian by the name of Johnny Katz. Now, for those of you who don't know, Johnny has been in the comedy scene now for over 20 years. And man, you can tell that when you see him on stage. He absolutely blows the roof off the place. I've seen this guy perform on so many different occasions in so many different venues. And I'm just constantly amazed at how well he connects with the audience. It's always a, uh, a, a real pleasure to watch him up there doing his magic. Despite whether or not you're a comedy fan, though, this conversation's about more than comedy. We talk about we talk about a lot. We talk about our experiences in Victoria here in Australia through lockdown. We talk about um, you know how it's taught us about where our values lie, about uh, what we can be grateful for, about the the little things that we can do in our lives just to you know keep a perspective on what it is that we're going through. I mean, you listen to the conversation though; it's a it's a good one. We go down a few rabbit holes, so it's a lot of fun. So, hey, with all that said, let me get out of the way and introduce to you for the first time on the Pop Culture Podcast, Johnny Katz. So, what are you going to tell us, tough guys? My usual, zero, nothing. <laughs> Yeah, I reckon podcasts ideally are, are best face to face. I noticed your one was was all face to face, and you were just telling me it was a a good little excuse to do some face to face contact during lockdown. Yeah, just to get people into my home to, to to physically talk to someone because I remember at that stage I was just stacking shelves at Woolies, and that was very impersonal. Uh, you weren't allowed to talk, so you had to split up the load and stack shelves, and then. It was just fucking awful. I felt like it was a prison sentence. I felt like I was doing community service. So coming home, there were no gigs. So I'm like, i got to get comedians here. So my doctor said to me, um, I'll just write a bullshit certificate that you're suffering mental <laughs> health issues. And I'm like, sweet. And then I got the permission to bring people into my home. To I love it. I <laughs> love it, man. Dude, it, it was... still works. It's, this still works. I like this. It's just... Uh, I think it's great. Yeah, it's like a it's a good it's a good alternative. Like I uh, ideally, I would love to get something set up in person as well. But it's just I think the online element it, it just gives you access, I guess, to a, a whole range of people. Like I had a chat with a couple of people who are in the states, and obviously that's impossible. But man, like that face to face chemistry, I, I sort of miss that as well. That's so funny, dude. Like during uh during lockdown, it was so interesting just watching the way that people could work around the rules and. Um, yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. Like it was, it was one of the more funny things, like as we went further and further into the process, just watching people's, uh, standards for what they were happy to do slip based on how it was that, uh, we started that thing. But isn't it funny, man? It, it's funny that uh, you had a good doctor like that. We had a good doctor as well. Actually, I remember we were trying to navigate our way because we didn't get the vaccine and we were trying to navigate our way through travel because we wanted to go and see Jesse's family in, um, in the States and uh, we were like, all right, I think it's out. I think we're done. And we, we can't do it. But we had this bloke up in Byron Bay. He's a qualified doctor. He just didn't agree with the, um, I guess, the message that was just being pumped by every mainstream media channel the the whole time. And he's like, dude, like, talk to me. Talk to me about your health. Talk to me about your beliefs. Talk to me about where you're at. And I talked to him. And he's like, all right, here's a good way around it. I'll give you an exemption for six months. And and there you go. And I just didn't know people like that existed, man. So it's it was just nice. It was refreshing. Because I, I, I don't know how you went, bro, but... Like I spent so much of the time just frustrated that there was just like no honest, genuine conversations. It was all, hey, just do this to protect your neighbor. And that was that was the end of it. I was like, fuck, like surely there's surely there's like another part of this conversation that we haven't quite tapped into yet. And I just I remember I'm mates up here with a, a bloke who's a doctor and I messaged him. Really good guy. I go, dude, like, would you consider writing me an exemption just for twelve months just while I figure this out? And uh he wrote back this email that I knew it was it was just one of those ones that they'd been sent to all the clinics saying, 
these are the reasons we'll give you an exemption. And they were just diseases and things that I'd never heard of before. And I was thinking, far out, like if even, even this legend's pumping this kind of stuff, it's going to be difficult to navigate your way around it. How did you find the whole process, man? Because like, regardless of where you stand with that stuff, it was, it was definitely a bit of a lonely time, hey? Very much so, yeah. Uh, oh, gosh, looking back on it now, um, uh, just I, I was telling a friend the other day how I just we're starting to have COVID in our rearview mirror now, and essentially we're starting to look back from an outside point of view. And I think it'll it, it'll definitely go down in history as extraordinarily isolationist. I, I I just remember myself, there were moments where I wasn't sleeping and I couldn't work out why I wasn't sleeping. And in hindsight, I think it was just anxiety. And I think the anxiety was coming from the fact that I was having minimal to no people contact working in a supermarket. So I essentially my career had regressed to a 16 year old kid's career of stacking shelves. And um, I was, uh, yeah just uh not sleeping and i couldn't work out where why and now i know why but yeah it was crazy time that's how i put it down yeah yeah it's a good way to put it it must have been strange for a bloke in your situation like i i often wonder how full-time comedians found it because there were certain industries that you just got absolutely pumped because my wife was a teacher she was able to work from home um i had a lot of people who you could just you could adjust the way you approached it. I don't know, like some people were trying to put on Zoom shows and things like that. Um, I don't know how many of them were being paid, but for a for a full-time comic, that is like completely career on hold. Like you have no other options really in that situation, do you? Because, well, you do a bit of bar work as well, don't you? So you can't, like you can't be uh, in the comic clubs, comedy clubs, you can't be in the bars. Um, it's definitely, uh, it definitely becomes, you can have an existential crisis, like, for example, if you don't do stand up, like if I peel away, if I took away your children and your wife and, and your comedy, uh, who are you essentially? If you start stripping those layers back, uh, how do you define yourself? Who is Tyson? So, like, I no longer was doing stand up, I no longer was going out and meeting people and chatting and conversing, I no longer had the, the pub job. And so all these layers were going away from me. And I was like, who am I? Like, what, what am I? I guess I was just, uh, yeah, what the fuck am I? What, what are any of us now? We're not doing our jobs. We're not seeing, our, some of us aren't seeing our families. It's just weird. So yeah, there was a lot of, uh, it was an existential crisis for myself to find out who I am and what I am. But through the end of it, I think we came out okay. Um, but it was just like, fuck, if you're going to lock us up again, it better be the bubonic plague or something that wipes <laughs> out a third of fucking humanity. Otherwise, I don't think we'll stand for it. Seriously, man. Yeah, it's funny. I think the fact that my mum's no longer up for any more lockdowns is a pretty good sign that yeah, <laughs> you could be right. What's at the bottom of that question, though, man? Because it's, it's an interesting one that I know at different points in different people's lives, that question comes up. And like I'm 36 at the moment and I've noticed a bit of a theme with a, a number of my mates now because we're not young anymore. In fact, we're, we're like getting towards middle age and all of a sudden you start to realise that a couple of the goals that you had, you know, you weren't successful at or a couple of the ways you imagine your life would look doesn't quite look that way. Or, you know, it, there's different seasons or different phases in people's life where that question comes up. But it's, a, it's an interesting one what people find at the bottom of it. Like, do you, do you feel like that you, 
you found any solid answer um, at the bottom of the question through COVID? Oh, uh, I think maybe, uh, yeah, I think maybe in terms of what I discovered was uh, to uh, be minimalistic in terms of uh, the pursuit of happiness. So do what makes you happy and uh, kind of minimal, not chasing certain material possessions and stuff like that so that's where i found my peace and my happiness so i'm um very grateful to be doing stand-up part-time and work part-time in a pub i think that's great um whereas several years ago i may, before lockdown i may have been no nah, no nah, i want to do it full-time so I think lockdown has made me appreciative and grateful of just the sheer fact that I can most times make people laugh. So take that as a win, put it in your pocket and just be grateful that you can connect with a human being after this pod, go and have a coffee with someone and have your freedom. So I've become more appreciative. So, and uh, yeah, if that answers your question. For sure, man, for sure. I remember... It was it was so interesting. I don't know what your first experience was, but Mark Oshka used to run that warehouse gig, and I remember. Uh, did you ever go to it? Yeah, yeah. He used to run that warehouse gig, and I mean, he was he was a wild man, like in a lot of people's eyes. He was running it the whole way through. But what I loved was in Victoria when they finally said, "All right, well, this lockdown's done. It looks as though we're going back to normal." I remember going to that place, and I was going to go in and do like a ten minute set. I was going to go home because it was late night. I had dad duty the next morning. Um, I thought I'd just go down, say good day, hang with the guys for a minute and then head on home. And, dude, I, I got into the room and there was just a buzz in the air. Like every single person just felt so stoked and you could sense it. Every single person in the room was so stoked just to be out rubbing shoulders with people uh, away from the computer, uh, having a laugh, having a drink um, in like what is a, a wild and cool room. And I remember it got to 1 o'clock in the morning and I'd been there for about three and a half, four hours, and I was like, I can't go home. Like, I'm, <laughs> it was, it was just a wild, uh, a wild experience, man. Like, so, so yeah, you're right. That experience to be able to just get back out, reconnect, it definitely changes your perspective on on what you're grateful for. And even now, like, what is it? Maybe twelve months, twelve months later, it's it's easy to just get set back into your ways of all right. This is just the way life is. But when you take a moment like that to actually look back and go far out, that was. It was a bit sketchy there, and it was it was a pretty wild experience. That yeah, it certainly makes makes me grateful, like yourself, for the um for the small for those small things. Did it take you long to get back into a rhythm with comedy? Because I know you say you're part time, but for for most people listening, they know you do it at a a real high level. And man, you say most of the time make people laugh. I don't know if there's a time I haven't seen you uh nail that part of the <laughs> nail that part of the concept. But how how was the the rhythm of just getting back into it on a in more consistent basis because what you've been doing it for for 20 years now yeah 20 years so uh it was weird not doing i've never had a gap of away from stand-up for longer than three months and that was in my first year of stand-up so i was away from stand-up for nine months but in that nine months of being away from gigs i did a couple of um uh internet gigs where we'd go to a studio and they'd like the comics lounge and they'd beam it out to all these people online at home, which is fucking weird. Um, but that, that worked. 
So I was still able to tick by and do gigs. And also I wrote material during lockdown and would um, uh, Zoom call comics and literally perform to them and they'd perform to me. What else could you do? Mm. It was the equivalent of a fucking blow-up doll when there was no woman around. (laughs) It's so true. It's so true. So how often were you doing that during lockdown? Was that a a weekly thing? Because I never did one. Man, but uh, I, I didn't really get the appeal. I didn't. I didn't have the desire to do it either. Because part of what I love about comedy is is just being in that room with the people and and trying to dance off the energy a little bit. And um, I don't know. It's it's weird with a thing like comedy conversations like this seem to work well because I mean, what we talk about is is what we're going to talk about. And sure, there's probably like an element that we're missing out because we're we're not sitting across the table from each other. But but with comedy, I always felt that was so essential. And I kind of and you seem like this as well. I don't know. I don't know what you have to say to it, but. You seem to feed off the energy a lot, like um, when the when the audience is biting back or, or or send a whole heap of energy back to you in the form of laughter. It does something in terms of confidence, in terms of enjoyment, and it it absolutely does. You're 100 percent right. But the way I describe it is, it's a bit like aviation. You can learn. It's not as it's nothing like flying an actual plane, but you still got to sit down and study theory. And I think that's what it was like during lockdown, sitting down and writing comedy pretending to be on stage, putting together premises, executing punchlines, and then Zoom calling a friend. I, pres- I, I prescribe that as like similar to, yeah, studying theory. Nothing like actually flying a plane. Nothing like it. The real buzz of stand-up, but better than nothing. Mm. So just had to. There's nothing else to do. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's true. It would have been a strange experience getting back up in front of a uh, a pumped comics lounge or a packed comics lounge after that. Well, yeah, absolutely. And that's where I, I discovered that um, you should just – that's where I discovered uh, being grateful and being appreciative of what I actually have in my life. It Lockdown taught me a fundamental principle of perspective. I have a – I'm grateful for lockdown now because I have a wonderful perspective on life, an absolute appreciation of connecting with human beings, reconnecting with my family, sitting around a table or having a barbecue with my loved ones or connecting with another human being or going to perform in front of 10 fucking people. That's enough for me, man. That's it's beautiful. I look at things, what's happening in Ukraine and people in, in, in Sudan and I'm like, these fuckers are dying. They, they, they haven't even got, they've got no freedom whatsoever, but I've, I've been granted my freedom back. So I'll fucking take it. And I don't care if I do stand up part-time or pour beers part-time. The fact that I have this freedom is enough now. So that's why lockdown taught me. And that's why I'm just, yeah, pretty chilled. That's cool. That's a, that's a cool attitude to take out. I, I struggled for a while coming out of it with the opposite perspective I, I came out and I was like cynical and bitter and angry and I just felt like I used to have a fairly soft heart and be excited to speak to people with different perspectives and after that it kind of triggered something in me where I was like oh fuck no I was I was just like a, a bit of an angry dude but I think at the moment like I've been a little more disciplined just to to take check of what I'm allowing like what stories I'm allowing to run through my mind and stuff because I've caught up with people and it was weird as well, I guess, like through the whole period, it was such an emotional time for everyone, regardless of what side of the page you were on, that people in that emotion would post something, myself included, 
that they maybe didn't mean it was a perhaps a little more emotional and the ability to actually talk about where you're at is, uh, as we all know, just limited or taken away on a platform like social media. And then you catch up with these people face to face and you're like, oh, you're, you're a legend. Like you're, you're a beautiful person. Like I love, I love hanging out with you. And for me, that's been like a, for lack of a better term, like a, a process of healing, a process of softening up a, a little bit again to the point where now I would say, all right, I, I think I'm almost back to the, the, the attitude for so many of the people that I maybe got a little bit harsh or hostile towards. Um, but it is true. Like it's, it's funny how, how much, um, you know, comparison can be the, the biggest thief of joy, but it can also be an opportunity to actually sit back and go, man, we've got it pretty good, really. Like when you look at the, the likes of who you just mentioned then, it, it sort of makes it a lot harder or it makes you look a bit ridiculous if you're going to hold on to that experience for too long and just be bitter and hostile about it. Yeah, well, that's exactly right, yeah. Yeah, man. How's the uh, how's the cruises been going for you? I've seen a couple of photos you've been posting there on the big ships, man. It, it looks like a a pretty wild experience. Perhaps the <laughs> the complete opposite to to what we've just been talking about. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a great experience. It's uh, they're 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 massive crowds. They're they're f- fantastic crowds. Um, it's similar to a comics lounge crowd on a Friday night. They're super pumped. They're on holidays. They're drinking cocktails. Um, it's a it's a great gig, man. It's a joy to do them. Um, uh, but but it's work. Like a lot of people are like, oh, you you're just having a ball, and I'm like, well, you you don't really want to drink, right? Because you're the comedian. So if they see you getting drunk and dancing in nightclubs every night, it's just it's not a good look. I don't know. But also, I'm 47 now, so. I don't need to do that. I don't want to do that. So in the off time, man, I, I read a lot of books on the ship. I, I read heaps and I'm kind of like very chilled. And then at night when I do a show, it's super fun. It's just unreal. Um, if I wasn't a comedian and I was on a cruise ship, yeah, I'd be partying and going nuts and having a great time. How long do the cruises go for? Are you are you performing every night? Or how does it work? Because can imagine it'd be a fairly similar crowd after a few nights, would it be? Yeah, so every cruise ship's different. So I can't speak for all of them. But the ones I do, you're usually, you do two to four 45 to 50 minute shows in seven days. And how is it out there? Oh, dude, I um, one of the things that puts me off so bad is you've never met a bloke with a more princess stomach than me. I went to the... Great Barrier Reef back in 2016, and uh, I, I had the seasick tablets and everything, and we were about halfway out there on this little boat, and we'd been out there for about I don't know an hour and a half, and dude, I thought I was gonna die. Like I, it was, it was so choppy, it was so bad that I uh, I wasn't allowed in the water. I thought that would be the thing that kind of made me feel better. We got out there, and the lady's like, "Look, dude, your energy's whacked. You're too sick. You can't go in." So I was just on the boat there for for what like we were there for eight hours. I was requesting helicopters. I was I was just wanting to get off there with all of my heart. So uh, I think the bigger the ship or the bigger the boat, the the easier it gets. But man, I, I don't know how much I would back myself. Is it is it okay out there? Like I've never been on a cruise ship before, or, or really a big ship. Uh, I, I love it. Like it's I, there's something like I I love the ocean. Always have as a kid. Just want to be on it, around it, in it. Just love it. So for me, it's it's 
it's good. It fits like a glove. It can get rough. The the roughest seas I've ever been in is like seven meter swells, oh. and uh, all the crew and the performers sleep at the bow of the ship. So we're up the front for one of them, and it just smacks. And every yeah, so the ship rides up and then smacks down onto the wave and it sounds like when you sleep at the front of the ship it sounds like an explosion like someone's throwing a hand grenade every two to three minutes um but you're like a baby in a cot and that's being rocked to sleep side to side so i love it man it just knocks me out (laughs) do you uh do you get into the surfing and stuff as well do you ever get in the water in in that respect it, it, on the cruise ship, I've never been to a surf coast where they dock the ship where you can paddle out. They won't let you. But um, I yeah, surf, yeah here, sorry. Here. I mean, just in general though, like you, you said, you, you you love the ocean. Like just growing up, is that something you're into? Yeah, just I I personally think it's just uh, some people have it innate. You know, like just growing up, um, mum and dad would would take us to the peninsula all the time down Rye Rosebud. Um, my parents have had a place there since I was a kid growing up there and, you know, being of Greek background and my parents telling me stories about the Greek islands and the sea and the Mediterranean, you just have an affinity to it. You just connected to it. Um, just love it. So yeah, surfing as well. Um, I don't call myself a proper surfer. I have a longboard, man. I just pop up and chill. I don't yeah. care. My back's fucked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sweet. I was uh, I was down at Point Lonsdale. I don't know if I told you that's where I live. I'm in oh, Queenscliff, Point Lonsdale. Yeah. And have you been down here before? Yeah, I have. Ages ago. Ages ago. Yeah. Just yesterday, I was I was down at the front beach, which is if you're in Point Lonsdale, that's just it's sort of opposite uh, where the shops are. So you cross the road to the shops down there. That's the front beach. Usually on a calm day when the tide's out, sun's shining, it's rock pools. The kids love it. But uh, uh, once a year or a couple of times a year, the king tide comes in. And during that king tide, tide period, yeah, the, obviously, like, the, the tide's right up to the rock wall. Uh, it's usually longboarders out there. Like, if you're going to see uh, surfers at the front beach, it's usually longboarders. Yeah. But, dude, yesterday, I don't know what the, the actual swell was, but I was standing at the, at the shore and then went up to the lighthouse just to have a look. And you know when you're, you're out of the water, the waves always look much smaller than what they do when you're in the water. Yeah, absolutely. Yesterday I was standing well out of the water looking at the waves going, man, they already look big. Really? And, dude, there were some boys just absolutely carving it up yesterday. But the last couple of months, like May's interesting down here as well. You go to Ocean Grove and there's a lot of longboarders out there in May because um, you've just got like a couple of a couple of foot sort of peelers and you can just ride them forever if you're mm. decent enough. It's it's one of those things, man. I need to, I need to get more into it because, uh, you know, I've, I've – I like the look of it. <laughs> I like how it appears on Instagram. I just don't have the love for it. I just, uh, I wish I could get more into surfing. Are you out there often? Like how often are you getting down to the beach for a surf? Uh, I'm out there probably, well, in the last few months, not often. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've got like, uh, my back's cooked at the moment and I reckon I'm in line for surgery. So I'm seeing a specialist in October. So he's told me to chill out. Yeah, uh, sure. Then and What's going on with your back? Just uh, I, I screwed up a disc. I did like disc degeneration. Mm, so yeah, yeah. That nerve pain. Between, yeah, well, see, it's sort of not really nerve pain. The the disc between L four and L five mm-hmm. has completely burst, and the synovial fluid has leaked out. So the disc has essentially fucked off. 
So the L4 vertebrae is touching the L5 vertebrae, which causes a bone spur, which causes the muscle to go away, to retract, to give it space. And that muscle going away causes a spasm. So it kinks my back. So when I was surfing aggressively at the surf park in Tullamarine last year, I was going once a week and I was trying to catch every fucking wave <laughs> because I'm a wog and I was trying to get back to my buck. Um, I noticed that I would seize up afterwards and I went and got a CT and he said, your disc's gone. And that was from when I was 19 years of age, like heavy lifting as you do as a wog in Coburg and Brunswick. You lift weights with all your lebo mates. And um, you bulk up, and I just went fucking horrific, man. I, I lifted so much. I bulked up so much. I was like 20 kilos heavier than I am now. Um, and, of course, I didn't have a belt, so I just screwed my disc. So, yeah, so I reckon in October I'm seeing this uh, specialist in Victoria. I've already got a first opinion, and the first opinion said you need surgery. So I'm going to get a second opinion. And if he says the same thing as the first surgeon, then I'm going to get what's called an AILF, which is an anterior interbody fusion, um, what Tiger Woods had done. Uh, Tiger Woods got it done and he reckons he's fine. And it's just scary, man, because they cut you open and move your guts to the side and basically get some Bunnings screws and put in a graft. But if I don't do it, I won't be able to surf. I won't be able to, um, I like a, right now I, I can clean my house, but I need breaks. I can pour beers, but I can't do keg changes. Um, if my, if my back's fucked, I have to get a friend to help me set up a gig with the speaks, uh, speakers and the mic. So yeah. So to answer your original question, hopefully fingers crossed by this time next year, I should have surgery done and I can start surfing more regularly again. Yeah, nice, man. Well, so with the surgery, they're going from the front, do they? They're going from the front, yeah. I don't need a po – posterior is a rear fusion. Um, at this stage, the first surgeon said um, because I'm not heavy, um, I'm, I'm a kind of like I'm a slim dude, um, they don't need to install brackets at the back of my spine. So they'll go in, they make an incision in your abdomen and they don't have to remove your guts on a table. Sometimes they do, but this time they <sighs> move your guts all to the side, which exposes the spine. Mm -hmm. And then they um, raise the two vertebrae, put in a plastic rib cage with bits of your hip bone inside there, a screw up, a screw down, and then they seal you back up. And over a year, the bone from your hip inside that plastic rib cage attaches to the vertebrae up and down and grows and becomes one fused section of spine. And that will give me the ability to not feel pain after doing mundane tasks such as housework. And because uh, I refuse to take pain medication, so I'm on nothing. Um, and because I'm on nothing and because I refuse to take nothing, um, I feel every bump and every scrape. Um, if I'm drastically in pain, I may take um, a, 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 an anti-inflammatory called Norflex, um, but it's not good to take tablets of any kind for a successive period of time because 
it has all this adverse effects to your organs and your organs are your filters and you need your filters throughout your whole fucking life. Um, not now, but when you get to 80, 85, if you haven't taken care of your organs, they're going to start fucking screaming at you. And then you're going to be an old cunt that can't get out of a chair or you're on dialysis. And why the fuck do you want to live for? Yeah, man. Have you heard of a guy called Peter Atia? No. No, I've just finished his book. It's called Outlive. Um, I'd heard this guy. He actually, if you're interested, I don't know if you, you like Lance Armstrong, even if you're not a cycling fan, I, uh, I got onto him because a mate sent me a podcast recently. and It was an interview with him and Lance Armstrong from like 2021. They just talk about Lance's journey and the drug scandals and, um, you know, everything around that. Really interesting chat. Actually, you're hanging up and you're like, man, Lance is a, uh, Lance is a cool guy. I became, <laughs> I became, I'd been dirty at him because I thought everyone in the cycling world back in the day was clean and he was the only dirty one. And then you, you, you hear a little bit more about the industry and you're like, oh, okay, so you were just, uh, you're still the man. You're still the best. It was, it was just you, uh, I think you had all the titles and uh, accolades so people like to make you the butt of all the uh, all, all the problems that the cycling world sort of had. Anyway, this Peter Atia, he's I don't know his actual qualification. He's a doctor of some sort. He's written a book called Outlive. So he's very interested in longevity, very interested in what is it that old healthy people are doing well. And he, he sort of, I don't know um, if you've ever read The Blue Zones, but National Geographic a few years ago put out a book called The Blue Zones, looking at the oldest, healthiest people in the world and just trying to break down exactly what they do in their particular area like is it lifestyle is it genetics is it exercise is it diet like what is it that these um well they found quite a lot there was a few there was a few similarities and they're sort of uh, uh, well i think they're hesitant to say 100% these are what the answers are but essentially um so there's Okinawa Japan there's a seventh day adventist group in um Los Angeles there's a place down in South America Sardinia is the one which I, I was most interested in so essentially um I can't remember the exact sort of categories that they fall under, but I'll just throw a couple of random ones at you. Uh, predominantly, uh, predominantly vegetarian yeah. was one of the dietary things. So they they all ate meat, but it was pretty much meat that they'd raised themselves. It was it was organic. It was clean, free from hormones, things like that. Most of it's grown up on the properties, especially Okinawa, Japan. Like they're they're catching their fresh fish there. That was a, a I think the most prominent meat consumption from what I remember. Um, Sardinians was interesting because just natural exercise. So not in the sense of they all had gym memberships and they were signing up for marathons, but just part of their daily routines is, um, like Sardinia has quite a lot of shepherds, especially in the older generation, people just walking sheeps over the, the mountainous sort of area, which is all around Sardinia. So these guys are walking like 10 to 15 Ks most days of the week without even thinking about it in clean air, air over hills, getting their heart rate up. That was one of it. Uh, one of them. The other thing that uh, like each group had in common was um was like the family connection, the the friendship groups, the family connection. It was a fairly prominent part of all of their lives. Like whenever they ate meat, usually it was in a more traditional family gathering where each Sunday they would get together, catch up with extended family, cousins, blah blah. I'm sure you know all about this being a Greek. Like <laughs> it seems that you guys do this really well. Um, the last one was like they were they were uh, a lot of them were faith based, not necessarily the same religion but they they all had a belief in something beyond this life predominantly um like seventh day adventist was a, cl a classic group of that um seventh day adventist like there's a couple of other things uh, just like their use of technology and their sleep and uh, all the things that you probably heard about but it was just interesting to see them all categorized yeah, it's called the blue zones or the blue zone solution um mm -hmm. if you want a bit more of a, an overview but 
Um, Peter Atia was a, another guy who kind of looked at this from another perspective. And, uh, I mean, he found a lot of the same things. But one thing, dude, that he, he mentioned that I was like, that's such a good point. It says a lot of us say we, we want to live till an older age. And a lot of us are. Like our health, our, our lifespan's longer, but not necessarily our health span. He goes, so we're living older, but we're not as healthy in those later years. He goes, what you've got to figure out is, okay, it's all good and well to say you want to live to 100, but what do you want that last decade of your life to look like? He goes, and if you say, okay, like here's my goal. I want to be able to pick up my great-grandkids. I want to be able to go for a walk, carry my groceries, um, live at home without going into old age care. What does that look like in the decades before? He goes, so you're going to need a VO2 max of roughly this. You'll need a strength capacity of this. Yeah. You'll need um, the flexibility of this. He goes, so let's backtrack from where you want to be to where you are now, say in your 40s, and go, okay, what does your VO2 max need to be, your strength need to be, and start to say that you're on track to be here he goes a lot of people where they where they uh want to be they're not at even right now so he just gives some really practical um tools and strategies that that i i, I guess um i mean it's, it's hard to say for sure because it's decades worth of work he's claiming well it may, i mean it makes sense you know it makes total sense and i really can't understand when people sit like i've been at situations in family barbecues where they all rave like my cousins are raving about their superannuation and how fucking set they are in life and how they're going to paying off their property and how they're going to be fucking set and then they're ubering eats mcdonald's and sucking on a fucking smoke and i'm like well fucking good luck with that yeah. Just what's the point? What are you going to spend? You're going to have all this money when you retire, but if you're eating Maccas and smoking and you're 50 and you're smashed in a backyard virtually every second night, you, you good luck when you get to 80. Yeah, man. It's a weird conversation I've been having a lot lately. And um, one of the things that I'm kind of torn at at the moment is, I mean, another element of health is is stress. That's one thing they speak about. And I'm I'm curious because I've kind of um, like obviously through the whole COVID thing took a pay cut based on the fact I was teaching couldn't do that without it, and I had this chat with my wife like all right well what is what is wealth to us like what do we want to do well and one of them was the just the autonomy over our own body we want the freedom to be able to okay if we want to do this we do it if we don't want to do it we don't do it um, yeah. and we're not going to do that for for and I don't know not everyone has this option unfortunately like a couple of my closest mates were on the same page as me but uh, as they, they weren't able to. Like they, they weren't going to be able to survive if they didn't have their job. So they had to go and get it. And I, I totally get that. But um, one of the things for us is is just that like, and it's such a cliche, but I guess it's cliche for a reason, like the that wealthy, uh, health is wealth. And I'm like, I'm happy to take a decent pay cut if I can. And I'm sure you appreciate this more than anyone with your back. If I can, if I can have full use of my body and I can yeah. um, feel good doing whatever it is that I'm doing. Yeah, it's, a, it's weird, man. Like that does my head in as well. It trips me out when you, <laughs> you see people pumped up about, you know, however much money they got, but they're in terrible shape and they can't walk to the beach without assistance. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating. Something that fascinates me is stress. And uh, I was, because stress is something that uh, y y it's a perceived, it's, you perceive your reality, right? So um I was always fascinated by how stress can kill you and because I've read it a lot. And I'm, you may know more about this, but I recently discovered that uh, when you feel stress, the body um, releases something called cortisol. And cortisol turns your body's proteins into a sugar and feasts on that. And that raises your blood sugar which 
sends insulin into your body, which causes you a whole heap of all these problems. Have you heard that? Um, Not like that. I knew the cortisol factor, but I didn't know about the conversion of protein to sugar and stuff. It's quite fascinating. Uh, don't, don't take my word for it exactly, but it is something like that, that that is what's happening because I was always worried about uh, how, not worried, but I was always thinking how stress can affect us. And that's how it is. It actually uh, converts important things in your body to a sugar and feasts on it. And it has all these uh, bad ramifications as a result. So the best way to beat stress is to uh, really, I think, change your mindset and become happy and comfortable with what you've got and where you're at and, you know, be grateful. Mm. Like, you know, I think and that's why I think people are like – doing meditation and all this like hippie shit and whatever it takes, man. And I think that how you said before about the seventh day event, whatever, that they're living longer because they prescribe to a faith. And when you prescribe to a faith, you have a belief system external to you that they're going to, I'm going to be okay. So stress isn't released in the body because, uh, because you believe in a higher power they've got your back mm. and it's okay. So you don't stress. So I can see the fundamental value of religion and meditation and whatever have you, anything to bring down your stress. Have you, uh, have you got any sort of, um, I mean, it's a broad question. I was going to say any, any particular faith or, or spirituality, or I, I guess my, my, the, the core of my question I was more interested in is what you're actually doing to, to take care of your stress levels. Cause you don't strike me as a kind of bloke that, Let's too much get to you, but I mean, it can always be deceptive in a conversation because <laughs> yeah. I know a lot of people say that to me. Are you always happy? I go, yeah. Well, talk to my wife. I reckon she'll give you a fresh perspective. Um, and uh, I mean, I'm really curious in the world of stress as well and how to navigate it. And just yesterday, I actually just in my little Evernote pad started doing a, a couple of thought challenges because I noticed I'd just been getting myself beat up about some dumb things. And uh, I remember a psychologist years ago gave me some steps with cognitive behavior therapy, which was always like a little gym membership for my mind and I always feel so much better about life when I'm doing it even when life's gone pretty well um so for me that's a, a big fundamental that I need to get start treating like an actual exercise program but what about yourself what are you doing that in that regard uh not much man I think it's it it's easier when I'm approaching 50 years old because I'm I yeah. feel like because I'm approaching 50 years old it feels like half time so the half time break in an AFL game so you just reassess and I'm like, oh, I've had a good couple of quarters and, you know, what I'm going to do in the third and fourth quarter. So I value it more. So I'm just more appreciative of life and where I'm at. And in terms of spirituality or religion, I see the value of religion. I like all religion. I like how Jesus and Muhammad and Buddha all say the same fucking thing pretty much. So it doesn't matter that they, you don't need to believe that they walked on water or did all this fucking miracle shit just take the message that you know so i like that i prescribe to that theory of all three and i chew mushrooms a couple of times a year and go for walks and just am happy where I, i'm at with my life and you know i remember i i went with my um i went with my partner to down the peninsula and we chewed a few mushrooms last week um i don't take a lot i'm not 
I'm not by any means. Don't. I'm not Joe Rogan. I, I, I literally like. I'm not. I take one or two and go for a walk, and uh, it was great. It was just you know we went for a walk, and then we got back to the house. We had no hot water. The fridge was broken. Um, but you know we just we didn't care. We were like it's okay. We got each other and we're happy and. It was just this beautiful piece that we went and cooked some food um, and we had a great time together and we just appreciate the fact that we're at a wonderful piece within ourselves and I think that's what matters, um, especially with like spirituality and all that. It's it's your own journey. You just got to be at peace with yourself, man. And I think if people are angry at gays and trans people, what the fuck, man? Look at your own life. What do you care what other people are doing? Like, what the fuck? You got issues, man. You seriously got issues if you're, like, amassing in groups in the city to protest against trans people or gay people. Like, go and live your life, man. Leave these people alone. Do Like, worry about what's going on inside yourself, man. Why do you need to? I don't know. Anyway, that's what happens on mushrooms. And I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sweet. <laughs> what's the um like when you go into it what do you uh, what's the intention there is it like you're trying to uh, just chill out or you're trying to expand the way you think because dude i've only ever tried it once and i i'm not sure i did it i'm not sure i did it right like i went to america in the middle of the year it was funny i uh because i'd never i'd always been an athlete growing up and just drugs of, of any kind of if you want to call it that like mushrooms and weed and things alcohol it was it was never something that i was interested in because i always just thought it was going to be a big inhibitor to my running performance and then as i got older like my perspective on that started to change and i was at a comedy room in the states and a, a bloke said to me he's like dude i um he's like you interested in in trying some mushrooms and i was like yeah like I'll, I'll try it for sure but he had his in a um it's like the little jelly form so he grew the mushrooms himself he said they're all organically grown which i like um and then beyond that he said he had a f- friend who takes him through the process whatever that is to convert it into these little jelly lollies mm-hmm. and uh, so i took those home and uh tried that but i think um i i had a friend who was smoking weed as well so i had a little bit of that and i think the weed actually whacked me more than the mushrooms because both were very new to my system like i I tried them so little before that I, I just got whacked for six um so i don't think i got the genuine experience but i know a lot of the uh you know people that i speak to say it just you know it can it can be really interesting um just from a mental perspective i mean there's a, a number of reasons that people seem to take it yeah, absolutely. So everyone's different, but for me, it's more of a um, to reset my compass to make sure my compass is pointing in the right direction, and, and that direction is peace within myself, happy within myself, content, being content, um, not chasing materialistic possession or getting sucked down that path. Um, making sure I have enough time for family and friends and that that's why i do it Um, that's cool that's cool so it really serves as a bit of a reset for you it's a reset yeah it's a reset that's exactly that's the word i use during the week it's a reset uh a moral a a reset to make sure i'm heading in the right direction um yeah just grateful just grateful man that's awesome that's awesome man have you um have you got any more uh, cruises or anything lined up? Like on the comedy front, what's the the plan for you at the moment? 
the, the, the comedy plan for me is a variety to do as many different types of gigs as possible, to do bucks parties, to do hipster gigs in Fitzroy, to do uh, footy clubs, to do comics lounge, to do Kings, to do all sorts of gigs varied, um, to put myself in all these different situations because a, 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 a a joke may be very, very funny in a particular room, but then you take it to a different audience and it may not get the, a big laugh. So then I will uh, assess that and go, why, how do I fix that? How can I make it get a big laugh in both rooms? Uh, so that's big for me, variety. Um, in terms of my next cruise, I think I've got one coming up in five weeks. Um, so yeah, I try and do a nice balance of as many gigs as possible. I try and do, um, uh, open mic Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then Thursday, Friday, fingers crossed, you get some paid work, but it's Melbourne, you know what the scene's like in Melbourne. Um, so yeah. That's cool, man. So what are you, are you gigging five nights a week? No, I, I gig about, uh, three to five. Yep. Yeah, yep. Minimum three I try and do, uh, or unless I've got other commitments, but I'll try, I'll try and do three. Yeah. Minimum. It's in- that's yeah. cool. That's cool. I like that number as well. I've um yeah, I'm in an interesting space where I like if I was single, I'd be down there every night because I think that's just the phase that I'm in. I mean, I've been doing it now for four and a bit years. Um, but I got a, a wife and two little kids running around, so it's hard to justify. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't not even justify, like I don't want to be out every night. But at the same time, it's it is interesting. Like I always had this conversation with running as well. Like it's it's interesting because it wasn't always the runners who who necessarily trained the most in terms of kilometers that were the best, they had some balance of obviously there was natural ability, there was consistency in training, there was ability to race. And I, I often try and figure that out in the world of comedy. Like I don't know if you've got thoughts here because it's the same in comedy. Like as as much as I respect it, it's not always the people who gig 10 times a week who are the best because there's so many elements that go into it. So I don't know whether I'm just trying to justify the fact I can only do a few nights a week at the moment <laughs> or whether there's something in that. But like have you noticed has it changed since you began in terms of how regularly you're getting up and, um, you know, does it's that make sense? Yeah. It's definitely a case of quality over quantity because I, I did an experiment when I lived in London where I was going to gig every night for six months and I did it and I came out the other end and the conclusion I reached was there was so many shit gigs that I did because I had to jump up every night that it would have been better if I just stayed home or ran the ideas past another comic. Yep. Um, so I think quality is better than quantity. But having said that, there are some comedians, myself included, that work best on stage talking my ideas out. Uh, rather than writing them down everything i've ever written that's gotten a really big laugh has been written on stage um so i reckon it's my dad's fault and my mum's fault for not emigrating to america um when hitler fucked up europe the stupid cunt everyone came to australia uh if they went to america I think I would go so far as to say I would be a better comic because I'd be gigging every night in America with more quality gigs, I think. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah, it's Australia. It's part-time, yeah. man. 
it's yeah. really part time unless you're famous uh it's a part time industry where can you get really good audience every where can you get a really good audience every single night mm. you have to be in america have you ever flirted with the idea of going over there to live and work well, i went to new york for i was there for 3 months and it was a class system mm. i've heard that it was it was the haves and the have nots you were either someone and if you weren't someone, you were fucking no one, man. It was like sign up at 4.30 in the afternoon to get a spot at 7 p.m. What? And it was awful. And you perform in front of comics. And then, and this is at the Comedy Cellar. So the Comedy Cellar, you'd sign up at 4.30. You'd do a gig at 7 in front of comics only. And then at 8 o'clock, the audience would come in and they'd have proper shows. And if you got lucky, someone at the bar loved you and would tell the owner blah 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 anyway it took me three months to make any sort of progress and that was at the comic strip in 80 comic strip in 80 something 82nd street or something anyway, it was a famous club it was a one of the clubs to get into and it took me ages but yeah the one by just by some chance the agent the booker was there that night and he saw me and he invited me back to the equivalent of a showcase like Tuesday at the comics lounge where pro comics come down and try stuff. So they invited me for that. That was the only progress I made. And then I went back to Australia and I saw a comic, Brendan Burns, and he goes, why'd you go to New York for? Go to London, man. It's way easier. So then I went to London and I did a 10 minute spot in front of 300 people. And me and Kevin Bridges were the open spots. Go figure. <laughs> he smashed. Then I went on, and luckily, knock on wood, I smashed. And yeah, and then jonglers were like, "Yeah, we'll give you paid work." It was that easy. So I go, "This is a no-brainer." I moved to London because then I could like gig in a great scene and go back home for the night. Because as you know, England is a tiny island with sixty million. Oh, sorry, Britain is a tiny island with sixty million people. Uh, so there's there's gigs everywhere and they're quality gigs and you can jump in a car afterwards and drive home. So if you want more advice, whoever's listening and you're a comic, get in touch with me and I'll tell you, go to London um, or ideally live in Birmingham and get a shit car or an economical car and then you can drive around to every gig in England because every gig's two and a half hours away and you can be home by two in the morning in bed. Jeez, man. Yeah, I've noticed there's a couple of, like Peter Jones is over in, the UK at the moment. I've heard a couple of other people. I don't know if you know Anno. I think it's Anno Gomez, a, a South Australian guy in the open mic scene. He comes over here from time to time. He was saying, uh, I caught up with him a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying that he's going over to, to London. I remember I was there in 2017. Um, I wasn't a comedian then or, or doing any stand-up, but I went to a couple of gigs out in Angel, and I remember thinking it was pretty cool because it was quite a small room, but there must have been 40 people in there, that donation-based style. That oh, Yeah, great. standard. I know Dude, that. Yeah, so there was one decent. London. Yeah, man. Yeah, do you remember yeah. what it was called off the top of your head? Because I, um, I think it was just Angel Comedy, man. Angel Comedy. Yeah, we only we went there the one in, night in Islington. Uh, yeah, dude. That was that's a yeah, uh, that's a great room. I know it. It's um, but there's heaps of little rooms like that, man. That's um, that's the UK. Um, if you can go, I got I had a Greek passport from my old man. So that's why the Poms couldn't get rid of me. 
<laughs> so what, you were there for six months or that was just how often you gigged? No, I was every there for night. 10 years. Oh, did you live there for 10 years, bro? Yeah, I was in London for 10 years doing stand-up. Oh, I had no idea. Dude, I didn't know you ever lived. Yeah, man. So when, when did you come back to Australia then? 20, 2017 to see Richmond win the granny. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, nice. No, that makes sense then because, I, as I said, I only got involved in comedy at the end of 2018. So I would have come back and just seen you on the scene and I just assumed you'd been here for forever. What, what made you come home or come uh, back here? Uh, the uh, f- connection, family, soul. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I was, I was, uh, I was, uh, I realized that to become a well-rounded, deeper comedian, I need to, to have a other things going on in my life, like a solid family, a base connection with people. Yeah. And, um, I wasn't, uh, in long story short, I was not putting down roots in England. I was not making a lot of friends in England on purpose because subconsciously I didn't want to settle down there. So I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? But it was, it was, it was, uh, it was amazing. It was like a, like a, like almost like the way I describe it to my mum is mum. I just went and did a university degree in stand up. I just wanted to gig as much as possible. You know, I suffered horrific deaths. I got booed off stage. I got assaulted. Did you, what, I also, I also yeah. had great gigs where I crushed. So, dude, what happened when you got booed off stage? What was it? What was that about? I was in South London and I just, I was five, three and a half minutes in, and my first two jokes didn't land. And I think I said to him, well, you're not fucking smart anyway. You're all dumb. <laughs> and they took it. I think they took it that I was insulting him because it was. I looked and I was like, oh, holy shit. It's, they were all, it was a black crowd. Oh. They, have, they have black gigs over there. I don't know if you knew this, but they have no. a black circuit. And I, I didn't know. And I reckon they thought. I was calling him fucking dumb because they were all black. <laughs> but I was just calling him fucking dumb because I didn't get my joke. <laughs> but admittedly, it was probably a shit joke. Uh, so I don't blame him. And it just backfired and they, they booed me and they started throwing shit at me. Oh, bro. And um, and then I was like, oh, man, I was just, what the fuck? So, yeah, that was horrific. That sounds horrific. Oh, it's so brutal. Yeah, I heard Russell Brand speak about how he's still got a scar on his leg from where, from where someone after the after the gig smashed a bottle and threw it at him or something. Like, uh, I mean, it's scary to think that, that this is what uh, lies ahead because, I mean, at some stage it's uh, – I mean, it's going to have – I've had some some horrific bombs myself. Thank God I haven't been booed off stage yet, but that's just because I'm new enough to the game that I, I imagine that's uh, <laughs> a couple of years away. What um, what was I going to ask you? about uh comedy about a uh, blank dude i blanked on what i was going to ask you it'll come back to me in a minute i was going to ask you about what you're reading as well because you mentioned you're a big reader out on the cruise ships as well so is there anything uh anything that got your attention at the moment that you, you've been flicking through oh uh, man yeah i'm a geek it's military I, I read military history at the moment yeah so just history on uh yeah military history just geek stuff and then i also read um uh, Stephen King, um, yeah, stuff like that. That's what I'm. That's the phase I'm going through now. Yeah, man. What? So you like your you, you like your nonfiction when it comes to your military history, but then just reading through some. I read one of his books. You might have read it called Later. I hadn't read many of Stephen yeah, King's books. I finished Later a couple of months ago. 
I thought that was unreal. Like that made that gave me a real soft spot. Like I I've known about it. I've actually got his um I've got his his book. I heard Joe Rogan recommend this one. I don't know if you ever read this. It's like a an autobiography that on writing. Oh no. So it's just him. It's really helpful, man. I can lend it to you. Um, but he he was just speaking about. I mean, it's a little bit of a, a backstory and how he got involved and how he got his break and things like that. But it, it had some. I know you said you don't really like write a heap. You're doing most of your writing on stage, but. Um, uh, I thought it was really interesting. Just to, I just love hearing the greats on on how they do what they do, whether it's him or Michael Jordan talking about basketball or whatever. Um, I just find it fascinating to get inside the brains. And yeah, I heard Joe Rogan talk about this book a, a couple of years ago, and I, I came across it at a at an op shop, so I, I picked it up for a couple of bucks. And yeah, it made it to the top shelf, man. Like it's it's really interesting. Mm. Yeah, I heard you and Huey Robertson actually having a good chat about history one day. He was telling you about. I can't remember what it was. It was it was something to do with uh, the structure of war and, and why certain people are harder to beat in, in certain wars based on the geography, like based on mountains and uh, ice and heat and, and whatever whatever else it is. He seemed yeah. to be frothing himself on it as well. That's right, yeah. And I think it was also military history in terms of, um, yeah, it, I think the, the lesson I've learned growing up and all the books I've read is that there's always two sides to a story. Um, I think apart from World War II, that was very noble. Um, that was an easy war. It was black and white, but everything else, it's like shades of gray. So I, I like reading military history from both perspectives as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you reckon that, is that because you're, you're sort of, you're born and raised in, that part, like, where does that love for military history come from? It's always interesting. I mean, I know there's enough books out there to suggest that it's a popular, a popular enough that a lot of people love reading about it, and there's historians. And my wife's in that category as well. But it's, um, you know, it's funny that the reputation is you're a geek when you when you love to read it. Like, what's the interest there, man? Have you always been involved or, or interested in, in in history in general? Like, why military history? Uh, I think it's just look at this freaky shit that happened. Mm. 3,000 years ago, man, or like there was a guy called Genghis Khan and like he'd just go through and like round up all these people that he conquered and he'd like shove them under a stage and crush them and on top of that stage he would party for 10 days straight and it's like he'd oh. slowly crush him to death when he conquered a people and it's like, wow, man, this actually happened thousands of years ago and then you look at uh that's what fascinates me and then going forward i'm like are we gonna learn are we gonna get better um or are we doomed to repeat it because uh, they say history repeats um so all these things go through my mind when i read history like is this gonna happen again can this happen again it's kind of happening in ukraine you know mm. what i mean so i think it's that 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 sort of spikes my interest have, have you ever heard? You ever heard of a book called The Fourth Turning? No, dude. I I just randomly came. I was watching a YouTuber I liked a year ago, and he was going through some of his favorite books, and one of them was The Fourth Turning. And um, I'll do my best to explain it. And and you, man, you probably know more about this than I do. But essentially, The Fourth Turning. It was written in 1997, and it was written as a history and a prophecy. It was almost like yeah, historical and prophetic at the same time. And so going into so much more detail than what I'm going to give here. The the author essentially explains that that history, when you look back, it operates in sort of 80-year cycles. 
And within that 80-year cycle, there's four 20-year periods. And the first period is a time of great hope and excitement and confidence for the future of your country. And then it progressively goes towards chaos and destruction, which is the fourth turning, the end of that era. And he was explaining that, and he gives so many examples of, of different phases in, in different cultures, but he was explaining that the fourth turning, the last one uh, in, in the Western world or for a lot of the Western world was the end of World War II, so about 80 years ago now. That was where you know Hitler did his thing. So many people were killed, persecuted. Um, you know, history speaks for itself. And then you, you fast forward to where we are now. Um, this book was written in 1997, and he said that in 1997 we can expect that the fourth turning it'll begin in around 2005 to 2007, and should finish no later than 2027. And he goes, you'll you'll know I'm correct if within that period you start to see like banking collapses, an obsession with gender, um, a push towards more government control. Um, he goes, a lot of the times, this is where communist governments come into power, um, wars. He goes, the, the scariest thing for us is progressively throughout history is the nature of the um, combat has been, they've, they've got more dangerous weapons. You know, so you might start with a knife, you come to a gun, you come to a machine gun, now we've got nuclear weapons and, and that's the threat. He goes, but if you can if you can come through that fourth turning, which today, you know, in, in terms of culturally, a lot of us have, that next twenty year period or that next eighty year cycle starts again. And for me, reading that book, um, it was just dipping the toes in the water, and I've got a lot to learn and understand. But it gave me so much hope because I kind of been the last couple of years like, what the heck's going on? Like, it's just a, it's been a strange, such a strange time for everyone in so many respects. That I was like, I don't, I'm, far out, I'm freaked out about when my kid's 30. But this book was like, oh, no, it doesn't necessarily have to just get progressively worse and worse and worse. There can be a reset and a restart. And, in fact, this is something that's happened historically forever, according to this bloke. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Who knows, man? It's, uh, you know, he's, you said something like 2005, he said, is when it's going to start. It's interesting because that's when China became big enough and strong enough to be a peer competitor to the USA. So yeah, in 2027 is what I've been reading where China will be uh, fully capable of pushing back, not having a war with America, but pushing back on some of the American policies that are going to encroach across Southeast Asia. So basically those two forces will come together. Um, I don't think there'll be a war because the whole planet will be destroyed. But you have a situation now in the world where there's, because as you know, after nine, before 97, there was only America in the world that was the true superpower. Russia was screwed. Uh, China wasn't big enough, but now China's strong enough. So yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I have read something similar that these two forces, China and America, are going to butt heads very soon and possibly over Taiwan. So yeah, it could be destruction, man. But hey, it goes back to, what I, what I said before, like your spirituality and being happy with what you've got in your life. Um, take it while you've got it, man, because you don't know what's going to happen in a few years, you know. Mm. God forbid, but there could be some shit hitting the fans. So live in the moment and just be happy for what we've got. Yeah. Yeah, man. Dude, I'll, um, I'll let you go in a minute because I, I know I said about an hour. We've been gone for an hour three, so I won't take, you, take up too much more of your time. What's on for... Uh... For the rest of your Tuesday? Uh, Tuesday, not much, man. Just uh, I, I might go for a swim now. 
Um, and then after a swim, just do some homework, groceries, chill, yeah. have a look at some notes, get ready for my gigs this week, and that's it. What do you got tonight? Uh, tonight, nothing, but I'm at the Comics Lounge all week. Oh, so, are you? I might yeah. come in and watch you, man. Yeah, I'm coming into. I'm I'm gigging up in um, Altham on Friday night, but I think it'll be relatively early, so I might come in. Are you headlining there, or or, or when are you up? Nah, I think uh, I'm on there Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I think they're doing showcase, so every oh. comic gets like 15 minutes. Sweet. All right, dude. Yeah, I might see you there then. That'd be good. Yeah, cool, man. All right, man. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much for having me, man. It was a great chat. I really enjoyed it. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, me too. All right, brother. I'll leave you to it. I'll see you later, everybody.